0: Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen...
1: Learn and enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation podcast series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I'm honored to have as today's guests Dr. Camille Magsimboll, who is an occupational therapy clinical specialist, and Christina Marino, who is a senior occupational therapist on the adult inpatient unit at RUSC. So, thank you both for being here today.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
1: You're welcome. Dr. Camille Magsimboll currently is involved in the development and promotion of self management programs for patients with diabetes, low vision, and COPD. Her capstone project for her doctorate was about low vision, its effect on function, and incorporating low vision assessment and management within the inpatient rehabilitation setting. Her occupational therapy bachelor's degree is from the University of the Philippines, Manila, and her doctorate degree in occupational therapy is from Quinnipiac University. Christina Marino has specialized in treating patients with cognitive perceptual deficits and visual deficits, and she also provides mentoring for staff therapists in these areas. She leads the Occupational Therapy Vision Team, which focuses on providing in-services for new staff and looking into evidence-based practice for treatment of vision problems. Her degree in Occupational Therapy, as well as a Bachelor's in Hispanic Studies, are from the University of Scranton. So as occupational therapists, what are the kinds of disorders you encounter that necessitate doing neurological and low vision assessments? And will the type of assessment differ depending on the kind of health problem that's presented?
2: So here in our unit, whenever a patient comes in with a neurological diagnosis, which could include stroke, tumor resection, brain injury, Parkinson's, or multiple sclerosis are our main diagnoses, will perform a neurological screen, which usually takes about 30 to 45 minutes. And if this patient has any kind of cognitive impairment, we do a modified version. Each patient is ideally brought down to the rehab gym or in a quiet space. Typically what we do for our assessment for the neurological side of things is assess the patient's acuity or how clearly they see, just like you would do at a doctor's office when you're reading the chart on the wall. But from there, we progress into looking at the range of motion of the eye muscles, assessing for double vision by looking at uh, the alignment of each eye, looking at the patient's ability to bring their eyes together on a target, which we call convergence. And we also look at the patient's ability to track a target as well as their peripheral vision to see if they have what we call a field cut or a loss of vision in certain parts of their field of vision. So sometimes we also look to see if there's any other weakness that we can see in the eye muscles that control the closure of the eye. So those are some of the areas that we start to look at with our neurological patients. And Camille's going to talk about our low vision patients.
0: So for all other patients that we have specific criteria that we have set that we will be seeing for a low vision screen. And these patients are anybody that's 65 and older that has had diabetes or a history of diabetes, history of falls, and they have acute vision complaints. So similar to what Christina is doing, we want to give them time to go to the gym and do the evaluation in a well-lighted environment. And we assess their acuity, their contrast sensitivity, their central and peripheral vision, depth perception, and then we ask them whether they have issues with glare and color perception.
1: Along with what you just indicated, is there anything else you'd like to say about how you go about performing these kinds of assessments?
0: So we can modify these assessments if it is needed. Yeah,
2: so let's say a patient has a cognitive impairment, which many of our neurological patients do. Sometimes it's hard to assess in the traditional way, so we'll use functional tasks as much as we can. So. A good time for this sometimes is mealtime. If we have their tray in front of them, we'll see if they can find all the objects they need, their spoon, the fork, their juice, whatever they're looking to have. And if they're missing objects, that can help us. Sometimes we'll see if they notice people entering and exiting the room, what they see in the gym, and sometimes what they can describe to us as best as possible. And also for patients that have what we call aphasia or difficulty with expressing language or even comprehending language which can result from a stroke or sometimes they actually have both expressive and comprehension problems we have ability to modify with things like uh, pictures and and modified assessment tools
0: that we can use to help us in those situations we would also encounter patients that would sometimes deny that they have difficulty with vision even though functionally, we have observed them to be kind of like having issues that cannot be explained by any other reason. So, we can give them a questionnaire that could tell us if they are to indicate like a higher probability of them having a visual impairment. So, any any patient that scores nine and over will indicate a higher possibility of them having a vision issue and we could talk to their families about possibly getting a referral to an optometrist or an ophthalmologist when they discharge.
1: Why do you think a patient would deny having a vision problem?
0: Well, some of them, because they're having a lot of issues already. Like when they come here, usually vision issues is just like a comorbidity. They come in here because they have um, chronic conditions such as COPD, heart failure, and sometimes having vision on top of it, may not be something that they, yeah, Yeah, it's hard for
2: them to face that that could also mm -hmm. be a problem. Like if they might have diabetes, which may have been a big factor in an amputation, for example, to then have to say, in addition to not controlling my diabetes as well, they should have, which resulted in the amputation. It's also now impacted my eyes and it's hard for them to see their residual limb, something like that. So sometimes they get defensive over that because they don't want to admit that that's another part of the issue.
0: And having low vision is something that could also affect their psychological status, and they they can go over different stages of grief, which denial is a part of it, and they could go in through all of these stages in any order, but it is a big component
1: for people with low vision. That's interesting. I hadn't heard anybody describe a situation like that previously. Now, the term neglect, which can be characterized as being personal, peripersonal, or extra-personal, can restrict independence in activities of daily living, such as dressing, and instrumental activities of daily living, such as cooking meals. Given that neglect is a complex and heterogeneous syndrome, how do you go about measuring it, and what do you do with the results of those efforts?
2: So... Just to give the listeners just background on body and spatial neglect, it, it can occur from a stroke or a brain injury, and we find on our unit and, and some of the literature as well that it's more common with the right side of the brain lesions. And many people, when this happens, they can miss objects, people, or just oh their whole environment on on that one side of their body, which is usually the left. So we find that this is usually on a spectrum, which ranges from missing maybe a toothbrush on the left side of the sink to missing almost the entire environment on their left side, and they don't even see, you notice people coming in on that side. So what we do is we'll perform, in addition to our vision screen, what's called a cognitive perceptual screening, which patients go through their whole morning routine. So they'll go through grooming, bathing, dressing, and eating. And we look to see if we can really pick out some of these deficits, like the neglect or problems getting their shirt on, all these different things we're looking at. And after we perform the screen, we will do our formal vision screen if they are able to tolerate, and we continue our assessment of neglect. So we'll look to see if patients can attend to stimuli on both sides of their body. And often if they do, they'll miss the one on the left side. And if we need to, it's severe enough, there is an assessment called the Kessler Foundation Neglect Assessment Process, which is a functional assessment that goes through transfers like sitting to standing, to using a wheelchair, to eating, all of these different tasks and grades the neglect on a scale. So if, this, if we need to use that assessment, we have access to it and we use these results to help formulate our treatment planning. So that is what we normally do to, Screen out neglect, but a really important part also is to rule out if the patient has a visual field cut on top of a, a neglect. So that's another part of our screening that we do. Is we really try to make sure that is there what is sometimes called a hemianopsia, or they're missing field of vision, half of their vision one side in each eye. They're missing half, but one missing half in the right eye, missing half in the left eye, which can lead to problems for their safety. So we want to rule that out as well. So that that's usually our process.
1: In asking the question, I came up with three types of neglect. So just to see if I'm interpreting that correctly, and also for the benefit of our listeners, for personal, that could be something like they're trying to comb their hair, but they're unable to see only one side of their head to work on. Peripersonal would be the example that you use where they're standing at a sink or a counter, and they can see things on one side but not on the other. And the extra-personal might be they're bumping into door frames and things like that while they're walking around. Does that sound about right? That
2: sounds right, yes. Yeah.
1: Okay, <laughs> thank you. Aging, medical conditions, and neurological injury have been linked to declines in cognitive capacity, vision, and physical abilities that may impair an individual's ability to drive safely. Are you involved in that kind of assessment? And if so, what does that approach entail?
0: So like, as you mentioned, since driving involves a lot more than vision, it also involves cognitive and physical abilities, if the patient wish to return to driving and they have Significant visual impairments such as what Christina has mentioned earlier, a hemianopsia, or a, if they have severely low vision, we do recommend that the patient go to their optometrist or ophthalmologist so they could undergo a comprehensive assessment of their vision as well as the possible use of bioptic lens system for driving. So they could also assess them for use of other adaptive devices such as adaptive mirrors and prisms so to make driving feasible. Aside from that, we also talk to them about driving rehab. And this is done by OT practitioners that are specialized in driving rehab. So typically there are two parts to their evaluations. First is the simulated driving that's done in the clinic of the OT. And then the second one would be a behind the wheel evaluation. So based on the outcome of both of these evaluations, they will recommend strategies, equipment, and training to promote safe driving. Or if they see that this patient could really not be able to drive safely, they will say that they should stop driving and and help them identify alternative transportation.
1: What would be the role of occupational therapy in identifying and addressing these different kinds of visual impairments?
0: So the first thing would be something similar to what we talked about earlier. We need to determine their level of visual function through assessment of their visual acuity, contrast sensitivity, peripheral and central vision, depth perception, alignment, and basic eye movement. So specifically for
2: patients with neurological impairments, We are often the first provider that really assesses and addresses some of these deficits and that can be extremely important for fall prevention and just their overall safety while they're on the rehab floor, but also when they go home. Like if somebody has impaired depth perception, knowing where and flooring changes can be difficult for them. So that could lead to a fall on a threshold between rooms, for example. So that's part of our role. But often, specifically with our neurological group, if they have significant double vision where it's it's extremely, you know, they're really seeing two images and it's strong and it's a constant, as well as areas where we'll have a patient that their eyes don't close all the way for whatever reason or their eye doesn't, you know, doesn't close or it doesn't open all the way. So, all three of those are very important for intervention immediately to maintain safety of the eye so for double vision we can help them by providing what we call partial occlusion glasses where we actually place an opaque tape over one of the patient's lenses on their glasses if they don't have glasses we can provide them with a plastic frame that we put tape over and that helps the patient by eliminating one of those two images that are competing with each other. So if they can only see one, they're usually a lot more comfortable while they're wearing those glasses. When I was talking about the eye closure issues, if someone can't close their eye properly, we'll help them with eye closure exercises, ensuring that there's proper lubrication ordered by the doctors, like an ointment or or some kind of gel for their eye. And we also help provide a patch for sleeping so that their eye remains shut while they're sleeping. And then also, if somebody cannot you know, open their eye, we can also do different exercises and taping techniques so that they can actually use both eyes together if that eye is able to work together with the open eye.
0: So other techniques that we also use to help them enhance their occupational performance is through visual skills training. So we, we can help them use their magnifiers. And then, like what Christina was saying, do, training them in basic eye movements, such as tracking, scanning, and eccentric fixation. We can also help them enhance their vision through environmental modification, such as helping them organize their environment, decreasing their clutter, optimizing their lighting, reducing glare, and then creating contrast so they could see objects better. We we also magnify, kind of like put into the foreground, the patient's strengths, to help them compensate for their limitations and see if there are any adaptive techniques that they could use. We can also recommend adaptive devices such as talking equipment, large print equipment, aid, assistive software and apps for their phones and iPads. The most important thing that we do is to help to facilitate the continuum of care. So, we provide them with resources. We give them information on services in the community that they could attain or avail after they discharge from the hospital and uh, refer them to other professionals that can help them.
1: When you perform a vision screen on a patient, what do you do with that information afterwards?
2: Well, what we'll do is we'll talk with our team members, our physical therapists, speech therapists, who are often trying to have our patients read articles, do things that require, you know, reading and writing. And then for physical therapy, they're walking in the hallway, they have to negotiate obstacles, do stairs. So it's very important for our counterparts to know the visual status, but also for the nurses on the floor and our a patient care technicians to when they're helping them to the bathroom or all those daily care activities that go on around the clock to maintain the patient's safety. So that's where we also disseminate the information that we get from our screen. And we also send some of our results from our screen to our patients' families. We also work to speak with our patients' families to inform them of different doctors in the community that, that we can refer them to, like a neuroophthalmologist or a neuro-optometrist that may be beneficial, or a doctor that specializes more in low vision, like a retinal specialist or somebody
0: that would be more appropriate depending on their needs. So this helps us really plan for a safe discharge and also helps the patient realize what adaptations and tools they could use. So they could re-engage back into their ADLs and IADLs with the consideration of their vision impairments and be more successful.
1: Is any special training required to be able to perform these vision screen type tests on patients? For example, special certifications for occupational therapists working in the vision rehabilitation area? So
2: specifically on our unit here, we have what's called a, the just a basic vision competency and. What we do is we have a new staff member come through and they do didactic learning through, you know, just using manuals that we've created and and different information that's been compiled for our new staff member specifically, and we go through that. And then once they go through that learning, they actually start to do screens under the supervision of an advanced, competent mentor. So Camille and I both do those screens. Mentoring for our staff members and we move them through the competency and try to get them to screen a variety of different diagnoses so that they're comfortable, you know, seeing somebody with double vision, they're comfortable seeing somebody with severe macular degeneration, all of the different diagnoses that we've been talking about. And then once they've gone through the competency and they're deemed independent, they can then screen on their own. But there are some specific to the field of occupational therapy mm-hmm. that Camille's going to refer to.
0: Yeah. So in the field of occupational therapy, there are certain special certifications that an OT could get. So first would be certification through the Academy for Certification of Vision Rehabilitation and Education Professionals. And it's called CLBT or Certified the Vision Therapist. So to attain this designation, they have to complete a basic competency with a CLVD supervisor outside core domains by the association. And they have to do a supervised practice and then pass the certification exam. Our national organization, the AOTA, also offers a special certification in low vision services, and low vision called the SCLV. So in here, to get this certification, you need a specific number of hours delivering OT services in that specialty area, and then you have to fill out an extensive application with a reflective portfolio, and this is also peer reviewed.
1: Dr. Camille Magsambal and Christina Marino, I'd like to thank both of you for the fine information and insights that you provided in this interview about using occupational therapy as a means of treating patients with visual impairments. I'll close by saying that it's been an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all your endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.